How's everybody doing? <laughs> Good. Uh, hey, I'm sure we don't tell you guys enough, but I wanted to, to, to go ahead and say it again and, and just make sure that... Um, a, I want to tell you, if you came out for the workday this weekend, it was really, really phenomenal to see uh, how many people showed up and, and did that. I know there's a lot of stuff going on. Um, we have a little bit more parking today. Uh, we're getting there. Um, everything's good for us to, to, to move into the other side uh, on Resurrection Weekend. And I just want to tell you guys, thank you for, for being so patient with us. I know it's crazy. I know it's packed in here, mostly because a lot of you guys probably missed the 9 o'clock service because that hour, huh? So... Uh, it's crazy how much that one hour matters, right? You know, but um, anyways, I just want to tell you guys, thank you. We're, we're very appreciative that you would make this your church home, that you would come and you would support us and, and that you would let us serve you. And, and uh, we have a really, really great church. And, and if we, we don't tell you thank you enough. So we just want to tell you thank you. If you've never been to the church, uh, it's a great, great group of people in here. We're working through the book of Hebrews right now. If you haven't been with us, uh, this has been a really great book so far. It hasn't been overtly complicated. I remember we were going through Daniel. Daniel was a little complicated at times. Hebrews is pretty straightforward. The first three chapters that we've covered, we're, we're on chapter four today of Hebrews, which is right before the book of James in the New Testament. You should have got a notes handout, so pretty much everything I'm going to say is in that in case you don't have a Bible. Um, but anyways, the first three chapters are pretty straightforward. And what they essentially hit on is this. This letter was written to a group of people who had heard of Jesus. Most of them, quote unquote, accepted Jesus. They were following him, but they were starting to turn from their faith. And so the author of this letter was reminding them, look, Jesus is superior to angels, superior to the prophets of the Old Testament. Last chapter, we talked about Jesus is even superior to Moses, the great Jewish leader that, that so many people revered. And so what we talked about last week was this, is that it's not enough to say we follow Jesus. It is not what we say, not simply that, but it is how we live that is the evidence of our faith, okay? And we know that we have not always done a good job with that as Christians, but it's how we live, not by what we say that defines us, okay? This week, we're gonna talk about this, and, and I have a preface to this lesson. The preface is this, I'm gonna teach you a lesson on something that I have not mastered. There's a lot of stuff I teach that I have not mastered, but the one I'm going to teach today, I have really not mastered. I have not been very good at, at finding rest. I'm not very good at slowing down. It's something that I'm constantly working on. I'm getting better at. So I'm going to teach you this lesson about biblical rest and how we find rest, but we only find rest when we put forth effort and when we approach Jesus Christ with an open mind and an open heart, okay? Okay. So we're going to talk about biblical rest today. And again, I just want to tell you, I am not the best at this. In fact, it's probably one of my weaknesses that I'm not good at slowing down and stopping and listening to the Lord. I'm not good at resting, okay? So be gracious with me if I get a little fiery at times, which I'm not going to get super fiery during this, but know that it's something that I struggle with. It's something that I'm not good at. So it's not targeted towards you. It's, it's very much targeted at myself, all right? So let me pray. Glad you guys are here. Uh, again, if you didn't get a notes handout, if you have version on your phone, all the notes are on there. Just look up our church and all the notes are there and uh, you can put prayer requests on there and all that jazz. So I'm going to read chapter four today. We'll break it down uh, to the best of our abilities and uh, we'll get started. Okay, let me pray for you. You're welcome to, to pray for me. Lord Jesus, God, I love you. I just want to tell you, uh, God, thank you for bringing everyone into this place today. God, thank you for all the help that we had yesterday uh, cleaning up and building chairs and doing all that jazz for the, for the new side, Lord. Thank you, God, uh, for just a, a patient group of people and a loving group of people and a generous group of people, Lord. Thank you for them. I pray that you bless them today with your word. God, we also want to pray for every church in our city, Lord, for every church that proclaims that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, Lord. We, we, want, to, we want to support them. We want to get beside them, Lord. We want to walk with them. We want to advance your kingdom. So we pray for them, Jesus. God, just keep your hand on us, Lord. Open up our hearts and our minds today. Help us, God, to ask ourselves hard questions and, and help us, Lord, to trust you enough to, uh, to seek out your answers. We love you and we lift you up and we praise you, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, chapter four, right before the book of James. I'm gonna read a little bit. I've kind of cut this small chapter up into a couple of pieces and let me see if I can uh, explain it well. Therefore, the author says, while the promise to enter into his rest remains, let us fear that none of you should miss it. For we have also received the good news just as they did. But the message they heard did not benefit them since they were not united with those who had heard it in the faith. Now, if you haven't been with us, 
the author of Hebrews compares us, modern-day Christians, and the ones who are recipients of this letter, to the Jews that came out of Egypt on their way to the Promised Land. So there's a lot of comparisons there. And one of the comparisons he talked about was, is the Jews coming out of Egypt were promised rest, this promised land by God, but not many of them received it. In fact, the whole first generation did not. But the rest that we're going to talk about today is the rest that we find in the salvation that we receive from Jesus. When we are saved by Jesus Christ, by grace through faith, when we receive that salvation, we start to receive a peace a contentment and a joy. And this is not by any work we have done. If we can do anything, we simply approach God. And when we approach God, it's His work, not our work, that saves us. We also talked about last week this, that if we cease to live in that, if we cease to have an existence that that abides, lives, hangs out with Jesus, we show that we don't really have a genuine faith, that we lack a genuine faith. Now, something I said last week that looks like it's contradicted right here in chapter 4, at the end of last week, I talked about, kind of railed about, the fact that we have become a society plagued by fear and anxiety. And the Bible says that we are to be anxious for nothing, and it says that fear is not a spirit given to us by God. Now, that's odd when it says here in chapter 4, the author says, let us fear. Well, let me explain. This is a different kind of fear. This isn't being afraid of things all the time. This is the kind of fear or the kind of concern that we should have that some people will hear the truth, some people today will hear the truth of Jesus Christ and they will reject the truth of Jesus Christ. That is something that should bother us. That's a healthy fear that all believers should have. Now, most of the Jews that came out of Egypt on their way to the promised land, all of the ones over the age of 20 died. They did not make it. And they all died before reaching the promised land. And the author of Hebrews didn't want a similar fate to happen to us. He didn't want us to not get to where God wants us to go, our promised land, which is heaven, our eternity, okay? So now there's multiple corners of this this rest thing we're going to talk about. I call it salvific rest. That's a fancy way of saying rest that we find from a relationship with Jesus. There's multiple angles to that. The first one is this, and some of you guys may uh, uh, contend with this, but, but I believe the Bible supports it, is that we have to claim rest. Jesus has purchased our salvation. He has bought our freedom. He has bought our peace, our joy, our contentment. We simply have to go and claim those things. And the gospel or the good news of Jesus is available for everyone, but we have to receive it. It's not enough to just hear that we have this gift. We have to go pick it up. We have to claim this into our lives. It's not enough just to hear the gospel. We must apply the gospel. We must absorb the gospel. So the Exodus Jews heard the message. All the ones coming out of Egypt knew that there was a promised land. They heard it, but they refused to believe it and live by it. Therefore, they received no value from the lesson. They received no value from the promise. And the author didn't want us to make that same mistake, to hear the truth and not apply it to our lives. Because without faith, it is impossible to please God. So I say it again. I'm going to be redundant today. That's because I needed to hear it. That the gospel is of no benefit if we don't believe it and act on it. Hearing the gospel is of no benefit if we don't believe it and act on it. Okay? So the next part is talking about what example do we have? Well, God rested. Let me read to you about that. For we have believed and entered into the rest in keeping what he said. So I swore in my anger, God says, that they will not enter into my rest. And yet his works have been finished since the foundation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in this way. And on the seventh day, God rested from all his works. Again in that passage, he says, They will never enter in to my rest. Now, again, the kind of rest that we're talking about today is the rest that can only come from God. Those who genuinely believe start to enter into this rest when we are converted to being a Christian. So if you're in here today and you're not a believer in Jesus, and today you give your life wholeheartedly to God, you ask God to forgive you of all your sins and to change how you think and act, right when that happens, you start to receive rest and peace. If I were to go around this room 
and to ask you guys about some of the turbulent situations you were in the middle of when God intervened in your life. All that turbulence didn't go away necessarily. Maybe some of it did, but not all of it went away. But you received a peace that even in the middle of a storm, you can still find joy. You can still find contentment. Now, this claim is brought up by Psalms 95. If you've been with us through uh, Hebrews, the guy who wrote Hebrews really loved the writings of David, quotes him a lot. So he quotes Psalm 95. And what this passage reminds us is this, is that we're offered rest, but if we're rebellious to God, if we disobey God, we prevent ourselves from receiving that rest. Now, let me ask you a question, Um, not to pick on a certain generation of people, but in the 1960s, we had the sexual revolution, right? And the mantra of the 1960s was simply this, do what you want to do, do whatever you want to do. Now, if you go back and research the culture of the United States when that mantra became extremely popular, and that mantra has carried on for 50 years, do what you want to do, right? Have it your way, Burger King, right? And whatever you, it's do what you want to do. Burger King's not evil, guys. It's not good for you, but it's not evil. So there is this mantra that arrived from the sexual revolution. Something interesting when you go back and study the 1960s, Satanism was exceptionally popular. And I'm not talking about like subversive kind of behind closed doors, like the guy, his name was Anton LaVey, who wrote the Satanic Bible in San Francisco, California, ran with a bunch of movie stars. He hung out with Sammy Davis Jr. and the Rolling Stones, and he hung out with actors and all these different people. And he was the guy that wrote the Satanic Bible. It was exceptionally in vogue for a short period of time in the 60s to follow Satanism. I know that sounds crazy, but if you break open the Satanic Bible, which I don't recommend any of you do, But if you get a copy of the Satanic Bible and you go to page one before the actual Bible itself starts, the Satanic Bible starts, there's a quote by a really happy fellow named Aleister Crowley. And the quote says, do as thou wilt is the whole of the land, or is the law of the land, is the whole of the law and the law of the land is what it says. Do what you want to do. Basically, when you boil Satanism, Satanic thought down to its most common denominator, it's not worshiping the devil, it's you thinking and I thinking that we can do whatever we want to do. Now, when you boil it down to that level, has the mantra of do whatever you want to do, has that made us a peaceful, restful people? Has that brought us contentment and joy? Are we a restful generation? Do we get along with each other? Is there peace and contentment amongst us? I'll let you answer that for yourself. And so our rest does not come necessarily by doing what we want to do. Our rest resembles God's rest. After working, God took the time to enjoy what he had done. And we are commanded by God. It's one of the Ten Commandments to honor and respect the Sabbath. We are commanded by God to take the time to slow down to reflect on what the Lord has done in our lives, to let the Holy Spirit recharge us. Now, the Sabbath, resting the way God wants us to rest, does not mean you watch like eight hours of Netflix and like pass out eating Cheetos. That's not biblical rest, right? There's nothing wrong with that. If we're honest, we've all done it, right? (laughs) Or maybe I just have. But, uh, there's nothing wrong with doing that, but that's not the kind of rest that we're talking about right here. This is the kind of rest that is brought on by living the lifestyle that God wants us to live, by taking on Jesus's yoke, by taking on that responsibility, and through acting and through living and through following Jesus, we receive a peace, a rest, and we slow down and we let the Holy Spirit recharge us. Now, rest only comes after work. This kind of gets in the face of our our culture a little bit. Resting doesn't just mean sitting idly by. It conveys our total acceptance by God into his family. And when we are in God's family, we enjoy his leadership. We enjoy his presence, his peace, his power. And our response to that is actually to work, to do good deeds. It's to work hard and glorify the Father in our work. But it's the craziest thing. The harder we work for the Father, the more peace and rest we receive from that. And again, we have to block out time and be intentional to let the Holy Spirit recharge us. We see this because God did it. God didn't have to rest, but he wanted to model for us. So he created the, you know, the solar system, the galaxy, the universe, our planet, all the animals and plants and us and everything. And on the seventh day, it said that he took a break. Now, again, this is not an absence of labor. It's a peace that is found in working for God and celebrating what God has done. 
So our salvation from what he has done produces in us servitude and obedience, and we want to work hard for him. Now, there's this misconception about heaven, right? We all think we just work really, really hard here. We get to heaven and it's, you know, cloud cars and, and junk food. That's, that's all heaven is. We just chill out again. Heaven is Netflix, right? And you don't even have to pay the $8.99 or whatever it is. That's all heaven is. That's not what heaven is. Our eternity is going to be eternal rest, right? We're going to be at peace. We're going to be at harmony. We're going to rest. But it's not a place of laziness. In fact, the Bible talks about heaven will be a place of work before you clock out on me. It doesn't mean like nine to five, like in a job you hate. Our work is going to be glorifying the Lord, serving the Lord, worshiping, praising, being with each other in community. But now on this earth, in this time, we must choose to rest. We must choose rest. And it says in 2 Peter 3, 9, that it is Jesus's will that all people find this rest. Will all people find his rest? They will not. Some people will forfeit their rest, the peace that God can give them, because they choose to live a life of disobedience. That goes back to that sexual revolution thing. It goes back to that movement that started in the 60s and is still carried into today. We do what we want to do, and it has not resulted in a restful people because we have been disobedient to God. Okay? You guys still with me? Okay. <laughs> Since it remains for some to enter into it, and those who formerly received the good news did not enter because of disobedience, again, he specifies a certain day, today, speaking through David after such a long time as previously stated. This is what David said. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. Therefore, a Sabbath rest remains for God's people. For the person who has entered into his rest has rested from his own works, just as God did from his. So again, the rest that we receive is a rest that we find by being in God's presence. Divine rest is more than just heaven. It's more than just the promise of the afterlife. It's a peace and it's a security that we feel right now not in its completion, not in its fulfillment right now, but we get to taste that now and we get all of it in eternity. Now that's based on a condition. Now we don't like conditions, but, but the Bible is full of them. That if we follow God, if we follow his direction, then we will receive rest. Now the first generation of Jews that left Egypt on their way to, the, to, to rest, to the promised land, were disobedient, and they did not receive the rest that God had promised them. Now look, God had made a word. He'd, he'd, he'd made a promise, and he's going to keep his word. So what happened was is that promise that was intended for the first generation, they did not uphold their end, so it passed on to their children who were obedient, and they experienced the promise that God had for them. So the first generation stumbled, right? So the Jews coming out of Egypt on their way to the promised land had clear direction from God. Listen to this carefully. It, at night, there was a pillar of fire that the Jews followed through the desert. So if someone like, I don't know, had dozed off or something or wasn't paying attention, like, oh, which way are we going? Oh, there's the big pillar of fire that is God, right? I guess we go that way. During the day, there was this huge big pillar of smoke that they would follow and they knew that that was the direction they wanted to go in. Now, we can listen to that and read about that and be like, man, they were so dumb not to follow the pillar of fire. Now, we don't have a pillar of fire to follow. We just have God's word written in black and white, readily available to lead us. And so all the time we say, God, what direction do we go? And it's right there, written for us in black and white, clear as can be. Just like they had a pillar of fire, we have God's word right in front of us, the mind of God, and our directives are clear. Our expectations are clear. And the author warns us that the same rest or failure to choose rest was given to us. And if we're disobedient, our heart starts to get hard and it does become more difficult to find your way if your heart becomes harder. So we have to be careful. We have to listen to his directives. And this is not just talking about this life. This is more than the comforts of this life. When this guy uh, mentions a guy named Joshua, very interesting character in the Old Testament, he was Moses' successor. And what Joshua did, and it was actually, it's kind of an interesting thing to read about because of a lot of wars and everything else, he brought the Jewish people political peace 
and, and security, right? Social peace. And so that's fine. That's all good. And God gave us governments, oddly enough, this is going to blow your mind. God gave us the institute of government so the government could serve the people. I know that's not really how it works anymore, but the government is supposed to serve the people and they're supposed to protect the people. That's why governments are in place according to the Bible. But that's not even the kind of peace that Jesus wants us to have. More than a physical peace, more than a security from armies and governments and laws and regulations, God wants us to have an internal peace. And that internal peace of mind, that internal joy can only come from Christ, not from an institution, not from a corporation, not from a government, not from a kingdom. It can only come from Him because ultimately all security comes from Christ. All security comes from Jesus Christ. So when do we experience this? I've already said it a couple of times. I'll, I'll say it again just to drive it home. We experience it right when we accept our faith, right when we start to believe in Jesus and give our life over to him and repent and turn from our old ways. We start to experience that rest. It gives us contentment now, regardless of the burdens that you are in. Jesus completes us. And though we're not perfect, listen, we're not gonna be perfect until Christ comes back. But until he comes back, there is this refinement process. There is this, this whittling down of us to where we look more and more like Jesus. The closer we get to him, the further we move away from sin and our previous way of doing things. And though we are not perfect, we grow in our faith. We grow in our joy. We grow in our contentment. So again, because I'm being redundant, we are called into faith to enjoy rest, to enjoy peace. And if we walk in him, we get a glimpse of that now and we get the fulfillment in eternity. If anyone ever asks you, what's the meaning of this life? This life is an investment period to where we pour as much as we can into eternity, into our relationship with Jesus, into spreading the gospels to others so they will invest in their eternity. So when we get to the other side, we will have eternal rest. We will have eternal rest. Now this part's pretty heavy. If you mark in your Bible, uh, verses 11 through 13 in this chapter are just, just heavy. Let us then make every effort to enter the rest so that no one will fall into the same pattern of disobedience. For the word of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is able to judge the ideas and thoughts of the heart. No creature is hidden from God, but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. Now, let me break that down. This is a big one. Verse 11 encourages us to seek rest. Now, here's the thing. We, one of the ways, it's not the only way, but one of the primary way that we seek rest is through the Word of God. And to find rest through the Word of God takes obedience, and obedience involves determination. Sometimes people come up and they're just like, Corey, I need to know how do I read my Bible? And I'm like, well, left to right, top to bottom. And I know that sounds just like I'm a jerk, right? But if you're going to read your Bible, it's simple. You have to go get one. You have to block off some time in your schedule. You have to find a place to start, and you just have to start reading. Find a trans People ask me one time, what's your favorite translation? Whatever one you will pick up and read. Find one that you like and read it. If you want to grow closer to God, this is crazy, you have to want to grow closer to God. There is an effort that it takes on our part, and the effort is rewarded a million times over by God. And I know it takes more than just us. I know that though we put forth effort, we must lean on his ability to change our minds, to change our hearts, to start shaping us more into what he wants us to do. And to do that, we must abide in him. Now that means to rest in him. The way I look at abide, I think of it as we need to hang out with Jesus more. We just need to spend more time with him. We need to tell him that without him, we're helpless. God, I don't wanna wake up at 6.30 every morning and pray but I know that's what you want me to do. Touch my heart, touch my mind. Hang, I, I just need to hang out with him more. And when we show him that ardent trust, he empowers us to do things that we're not typically capable of doing. So back to the word of God though, because I, I, I love the Bible. Back to the word of God. 
The Bible is so important because it's alive. It's relevant. Whenever people say it's not relevant, we just got done studying the book of Daniel. We spent like four months in Daniel. And if you were here for that series, Daniel was written 2,600 years ago. You read that and it's uncanny how relevant those stories are to how we are today. The Bible is active, it's sharp, it's discerning, it corrects us, it instructs us, it encourages us. I said it a minute ago, our primary contact with God is through the Holy Word. I know we pray, but even when we pray and God tells us something, we're supposed to check it with the Word of God. This is an exceptionally important part of our faith walk. The Word of God anchors us in times of confusion. Corey, I don't know what to do. Culture says this. Society says this. Politics say this. Well, what does the Word of God say? That's our anchor. That's what we're tethered to. Corey, it's all falling apart. Like, you know, our next president and all this stuff, like things are falling apart. Well, when we doubt, there's hope. When we read that the Bible, what the Bible says, that Christ is on the throne and God's got a plan and all these things. When we don't know what's right and wrong, the Bible tells us, sometimes almost painfully tells us what is good and what's evil. It is the compass for what is morally right and what is morally wrong. More specifically about the Bible, the Word of, the word of God is alive. It drives home the, the, the promises to the believer and it warns the people who are disobedient to change. It is active, it changes us. The Bible leads us to a higher standard. Now, I'm not trying to be mean, but whenever we are engulfed in pornography or we're having promiscuous sex or we're doing drugs or whatever, when we're desecrating the temple that God has given us, the Bible doesn't knock us down and condemn us. It says, no, 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 you're a royal priesthood. You're a daughter of a king. You're a son of a king. Step up to where your value really is. The Bible pulls us upwards. It says, no, 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 you're better than this. You look like God. You have the breath of God inside of you. Live up here because that's what you're worth. It penetrates the soul. Look at what it says. Penetrates as far as the separation between soul and spirit, joints and marrow. Look at how that is. That it gets into the deepest core of you, to the hardest of hearts, to the most rebellious of people. And that the Bible cuts down deep and it opens up the chamber of our darkest parts, the darkest parts of us, and it softens us. It discerns us. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. We're so quick to say, wow, that person's awful. They murdered someone. And Jesus said, if you've ever hated someone, you've murdered someone too. <gasps> it cuts deep down. It digs deep. It exposes things that we don't want people to see. Not because God hates us, but because he wants to bring those things up so he can heal these things. It discerns us. It judges us. That's a good thing. It's a good thing. Verse 13 is where it gets super heavy, right? Maybe one of the scariest scriptures in the entire Bible. It says that no creation is hidden from God's sight, that every single person is naked and exposed to the eyes of God. In other words, there is nothing that is done that God doesn't see. There's no cheating on your taxes, no cheating on your wife, no lying on this or doing this or stealing that. Nothing we do escapes God's vision. So not only can we not escape his sight, if we don't ask for God's forgiveness for those things, we're going to have to give an account for those things. Imagine standing in front of the righteous judge, Jesus Christ, and he's going to say, Corey, you cheated on this, or you lied about this, or you did this. Explain to me, why did you do that? And I'm not going to have a good explanation. I need to make sure that I'm right with him and make sure that I'm repentant towards him, that I've, been, I've asked for forgiveness from him. Now, here's the thing. We will face an awesome judge. This is a terrible analogy, but fortunately we have a pretty good lawyer. We have an advocate that fights for us. We cannot hide because God sees all, but Jesus Christ was sent by the all-knowing God to give us the means to escape our sin, to give us the means to escape our guilt and our shame and ultimately death. So the question is this, wrap your brain around this one. Who can represent guilty sinners to a God that knows all? His son, his son, God himself, a part of the Holy Trinity. He is judge, but he's also advocate. And he stands on our behalf and he is the mediator for us. He is the one that saves us from the judgment of God. If, if we will trust him and follow him and repent to him. Last part, 
Therefore, since we have a great high, high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to the confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tested in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness, so that we, we may receive mercy and find grace to help us at the proper time. Verse 16 is another one, if you mark your Bible, that's worth marking. So Jesus is called our great high priest in our modern day vernacular. He's our leader, he's our example, and like I just said a second ago, he is our mediator to God the Father. He is superior to all other priests and all other spiritual leaders because he is the only one that could pay for the debt of sin. Through the cross, he paid for all of the debt of sin. He's the only one that could, could open up the gates so we can be reconciled to our creator, to our maker, God the Father. He's the only one that could do that. Jesus has also passed through the heavens. I love that terminology. Though priests and though all believers, if you're a believer in here, we can be in the presence of God. We can feel the presence of God. Jesus doesn't feel the presence of God. He is one with the Father. He is God. He is the presence. He is the one we feel. He has passed through the heavens. He's beyond space. He's beyond time. He's also the Son of God. The most fascinating thing about Jesus Christ is He's not just God. He was also man. So whenever we go through hard things, I was praying with a sweet girl that I love at this church. I was praying with her last night. She was so upset and stressed. And she goes, I wonder if God can understand this. And I was like, gosh, like he was so stressed that he sweat blood, right? Right before he was crucified. He understands our stress. He understands the things we go through. He can sympathize with our needs. And because we know that he can sympathize with us, it is so much easier to hold on to Jesus. It is so much easier to cling on to him and to hold on to our faith. And because he's been tempted, because he went through similar things that we went through, he can help us navigate through life. We see that God is not distant. He's not hiding behind a planet. He's not unobtainable. He's personal. He's with us. So much so that he lived as one of us. And that gives us hope. We have hope because he came down. He met us face to face. And all the adversity that he faced, that we faced, we can overcome that through him. And so he didn't make any mistakes. When Jesus was, 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 was tempted with uh, hunger or when he was tempted with a desire for acclaim or a lust for power, he didn't give in to those temptations. He claimed victory in those. In any sin, he knew that if he would have done anything, it would have negated what was gonna happen on the cross. He was spotless, he was pure, he did everything right, and he was a perfect sacrifice for us. And because of that, he gave us the perfect redemption, and that should encourage us because we receive that sympathy, because we receive that victory. Now look, joking around about Netflix aside, I think Passion of the Christ is still on Netflix. A couple of times a year, I know it's a gut-wrenching movie, and if you haven't seen it, you really should. I'm not trying to idolize Mel Gibson or idolize that movie, but it's a very, very vivid depiction of what Jesus went through. And so when you watch that movie and you understand the sacrifice of God giving his only son to die in such a brutal way, when we understand that sacrifice, what is our response to such a sacrifice? Well, it tells us at this very last scripture in verse 16, we break it down. First, it says that we must simply approach. I know that we're not saved by our works, we're saved by his, but we must engage God. And when we engage God, there is a certain amount of respect and reverence and awe that we need to have for God. There's a certain amount of intimidation we need to have of God. Second thing is this. When we approach Jesus Christ, we need to engage him and we need to know that the throne he sits on is a throne of grace. Now, what that means is this, and I know that this flies in the face of our culture right now. We are deserved and we are owed nothing. We are owed nothing. Corey, these are my rights. We have no rights unless they're, they're given to us by God. We have no freedom unless it is given to us by God. We have nothing that we are owed unless God gives it to us. So when we approach Christ as God, I need this, I need this, I deserve this. We deserve nothing. We don't deserve the breath in our lungs. We don't deserve the blood that courses through our brains, our brains, our veins. It goes through our brain too. 
So when we approach grace, we have not earned grace. Grace is free, but it's not cheap. It took someone giving their son to purchase it. And we must not abuse grace. We must not abuse the forgiveness and the mercy of God. And it is free, but we have not earned it. We have not earned it. The third thing is we must approach Jesus on his throne of grace with confidence, or my, my translation says boldness. That doesn't mean that you have an assurance in you. It doesn't mean that you've done anything to earn the right to speak to God. It's not because you have confidence in your abilities or your works. We approach Jesus with a confidence that his works are enough. That regardless of how much we've done, his forgiveness is deep enough to bury our sin. That we approach him with our insecurities and our faults and our failures and our struggles and our issues. And we know that his love is sufficient. We know that if we have questions, he has the answer. We have confidence in that, not in us, but in him. And lastly, we engage God. We approach God, his throne of grace and confidence, so we can obtain his mercy and grace. Now, here's the difference to me in mercy and grace. God's mercy pardons our sins. When we approach Jesus, in his mercy, he forgives us of our sins. His mercy pardons our sins, and his grace gives us the ability to live for him day by day. His mercy removes those sins. His grace gives us the ability to live for him day by day by day. Okay, because we're an honest church, we're going to be really honest with each other. You've probably already cheated and looked at your notes, but I'm going to read you these questions. So if we're going to honestly evaluate ourselves, and you have to be honest with yourself. I was very honest with myself over these, so therefore you have to go through this too. The first question is this. Are we a people that properly rest? I'm not talking about veg out. I'm not talking about watching movies. I'm not talking about wasting time. Are we a people that properly carve out time in our schedules? Are we a people that, that intentionally block off time to pick up the Word of God, to sit in a quiet room, to put our face on the floor, to turn off all the distractions and to listen? Are we a people that get in our car, turn off the radio, drive down through the countryside, down 96 or down 99 and drive a little bit and just listen? Are we a people that intentionally, strategically rest? Are we a people that rest? Are you a person? that rests, that gets recharged by the Holy Spirit, that hears the Word of God, that feels the Word of God. Do you rest? Do you rest? Let me give you an example of my rest. And again, I'm working on it, guys. I, am, I told you, I have not mastered this. Every morning, I drop off my daughter at 7.30, right at the school she goes to. I come over here. I get to the church about 7.40. I get to the church. I come in. There's a couple of men and women that, that are pretty consistent here that pray. I walk in, I get me a cup of coffee, I grab my Bible, I go into the prayer room. I spend 15 minutes praying, and I have kind of a, a, a template that I go through that I pray. Pray for you guys, pray for my family, pray that God forgives me, I thank Him for things, I just pray for about 15 minutes. And then the next 15 minutes, I break open the Bible and I read the chapter that I'm going to teach this week. I might read a couple of chapters ahead, but I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't try to do too much. I take my time and I enjoy the Word. And then I close my Bible, and for about five minutes, I just sit there and don't do a darn thing. I just sit. And that's typically when God speaks to me. That's 35 minutes of my day. That's it. And I don't care who you are, you can do that. Now, you may have to cut out Facebook, but you can spend 35 minutes with the Lord. You may have to change some things around, which brings me to this question, guys, and, and listen, this is not to be mean, but I want you to be honest with yourself. Do we work in such a manner that even constitutes Sabbath rest? Are we working diligently for the Lord? Are we working diligently at our jobs? You ever meet those people or talk to those people who are like, oh, I'm so tired, man. I've worked like three hours today. Man, geez. You, I don't know if you've earned your, your break yet. And so do we ask ourselves, have we worked in such a manner for Christ to where we need to be recharged? You know when Jesus rested? Listen, this, I'm not trying to be a jerk. Jesus rested when his job was done. That's when he rested. He sat back and he said, that's good. I'm going to rest. That's when he rested, when his job was done, when he had done good work. Now, here's another one. It just gets worse and worse. Are we restless because we don't believe our distractions are an issue? 
You know, whenever we say, I wish I would do that, but there's just not enough hours in the day, you know astronauts have the same amount of hours in a day that we do, right? You know, people who've composed great scores for movies or painted great pictures or built huge buildings, whatever the case may be, they have the same amount of time that you and I have. They might be better uh, uh, stewards of their time. They might be more strategic and intentional with their time. And maybe that's why they have the success or Man, if I just had as much time as that mom, I'd be a much better mom. You, you do have the same time that they have. You do. And maybe if we took an inventory of where our time went, whenever people say, Corey, I just don't have time to pick up a Bible and read, you spend three hours on Instagram. Maybe only spend an hour and a half on Instagram and use some time for the Lord. I know that gets up in some of your guys' space, and I'm not trying to be a jerk. I do it too, guys. But sometimes we need to look at the things. We need to look at the distractions. And I'm not just talking about social media. Some of you guys are workaholics in here and you don't think that's a problem. That's where I struggle. I work 70 hours a week and I walk around, I worked 70 hours a week. Didn't hang out with my kids this week. So maybe I need to cut out some of those things. Maybe I need to know when to turn it off and to go home. Maybe I need to put in my calendar. If you don't have a calendar on your phone that you use, you should. Maybe I should block off some time and set an alarm and set a reminder that I need to spend 30 minutes doing this. The last question I have for you, do we really want the Word of God to evaluate us? I think the reason why more people don't read the Bible is because I kind of think they know what it's going to say. It might tell you to stop sleeping with your boyfriend. It might tell you that, uh, that addiction's not okay. It might tell you that drunkenness is a sin. It might tell you that you're a workaholic. It might tell you to treat your wife better. It might tell you to forgive your neighbor. It might tell you that it's a sin to be slothful in business. It might really get up into your space. I'm going to tell you, if you break open the Word of God, man, sometimes the Word of God kind of hurts. But that's okay. That's not because God doesn't love us. It's because God wants to cut off the corrupt parts of us so we grow into a strong representation of Him. Do you really want to know God's yeses and nos? Do you really want to know what God has to say about hot button issues? It's all right there. Now, here's the thing. I'm going to, I got two more slides and I'm done. The thing is this. Jesus Christ leads us to rest. If you're restless, rest comes through him. He will diagnose our needs. He will diagnose our failures and our shortcomings. He will save us if we're willing. He'll save any that will come. He will save us if we're willing. He will give us the mercy. He will remove our sins and he will give us the grace to live according to his plan. He will do that. But in order to do that, I don't care what you say, it says it right here. There is an effort that we must put forth. There is an effort that we must put forth. There is a strategy that we must have. We must approach God. We must engage God. We must seek out God's directives through his word. We must study I don't care what anyone says, you need to find a church. If you don't like this church, you need to find a church. There's great churches in this community, you need to find one and attend it. You need the church. You need to repent. That's not just asking God to forgive you of your sins. That's saying, God, I am sick of doing this. I want to go a different direction. True repentance. Listen, you need to ask God questions and you need to shut up long enough for him to give you an answer. All the time we're like, God, this, 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 give me an answer. And God's probably like, if you'll be quiet for a second, I will speak to you. Sometimes we need to turn it all off and just stop. And like David said, just be still and know that he's God. Just be still. We have a hard time being still because it's in those still times that God really gets into the dark parts of us. When he says, Corey, what about this? And then I got to deal with that. The second thing is this, and I can't stress this one enough. If our relationship with God is not the highest priority, every single relationship and aspiration and goal that we have is going to be fractured. If our relationship with God is not the highest priority, everything else is going to fall apart. Jesus said it like this. He says, I know you need food. I know you need clothes. I know you're worried about success and feeding your family. I know all that. Seek first the kingdom of God and all these other things will be added to you. If you know anything about building, there's the cornerstone of a building. If the cornerstone of the building is broken and falling apart, nothing can be built on that. But if the cornerstone is solid, there's no telling how high the structure can go. 
So if your relationship with God is fractured, it's no wonder your marriage is fractured. If your relationship with God is fractured, there's no wonder why your relationship with your kids, your coworkers, your neighbors, your family, there's no reason, there's no wonder why things are amiss because the ultimate cornerstone is broken. If your relationship with God is the highest priority, everything else tends to fall right in place, tends to fall right in place. The last thing is this, and this not so easy strategy, is that we must, we must approach God. Gosh, I hope I can teach this well. We must approach God knowing that he's not only capable to help us with our depression, our fear, our anxiety, our loss, our hatred, our frustrations, our racism, our prejudgmentalism. Not only is he capable to help us with our finances and our job situation and our marriage and our broken relationships, not only is he capable of doing these things, get this, he wants to, he wants to. Not only is he capable of putting us back together, it's what he wants to do, it's his will that all will find peace in him. It is his will. Living in this area, there's so many people, you know, because we have celebrities all over Middle Tennessee. There was one here last week and all these people, oh, so-and-so's here. You know, and, and I get that. I've been around famous people before, but we freak out, right? If we're eating dinner and someone walks out, so-and-so. We freak out by that. And I'm not trying to be mean or trying to be sarcastic, but we've taken for granted that the God that spoke the universe into existence wants to be with us. We geek out over seeing a celebrity and like, God wants to spend time with us. He wants to be with us. He's not only capable of helping, that's what he wants to do more than anything. He wants to help. He wants to give you rest. He wants you to sleep well tonight. He wants you to mend broken relationships. He wants to give you a peace that passes all understanding that if the world is burning down around us, that we can still find a hope and a contentment in him. He's not only capable, he's willing, he's willing. But we must engage God. We must engage God. We must make the time to speak to the Lord. There are some of you in this room, and don't get me wrong, I respect you. I respect workaholics. Whenever people come to me, they're just like, man, I put in 65 hours this week. I'm like, good for you. I respect people that work hard. I respect people that are ambitious. I respect artists that want to paint and write and and, and, and write songs and build things. And I respect it. I love it. I love people who are ambitious. I love it. But the older I get and the closer I get to the Lord and the more this church, you know, does whatever this church is doing, the more it becomes clear to me that if I do not slow down and carve out a time for God and I to just intimately sit, that it could all fall apart at the drop of a hat. In your life, workaholic, in your life, college student that's distracted by too much bullcrap, in your life, father, in your life, mother, in your life, employee or business owner or whatever you are in life, if you do not carve out and make that personal, intimate time with the Lord a priority, if you don't do that, if you don't live in his rest, it's very probable that everything is going to fall apart because the cornerstone is fractured. Some of you, some of you need to speak to the Lord because some of you can't sleep at night. Some of you need to speak to the Lord because you're afraid. God has not designed you to be afraid. Some of you have broken relationships and if you would just lay those at his feet and humble yourself, God may restore those like the pillar of fire that led the Jews through the night. The Word of God and the presence of God is here right now to get your attention and to show you which way to go. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, for all the people in this room who are workers, God, I want to tell you, I thank you for workers. God, I love, I love workers. 
I love people who just, who get gritty and, and who, who get knee deep in it and just work hard. I love those people and I respect them. But God, you know that they need to slow down and they need to rest. You know that they need to spend time with their families. You know that they need to find that quiet time with you. You know, God, that they need to recharge by the power of your Holy Spirit. You know that. And so right now, Father, I, I just wanna pray for all the people in this room who have a hard time slowing down. And I pray that you bless them, God, and I pray that you touch them, and I pray that you give them rest. God, for all the people in here who struggle with anxiety and fear and depression, Father, I pray right now, God, by the power of your Holy Spirit that you start to touch them. Touch their minds if they can't shut it down at night. Touch their hearts, God, if they're overwhelmed. Touch them and bless them, God, and give them peace and give them rest and give them a contentment regardless of the circumstances. God, if there's anyone in this room who is not a believer, they are not a believer, and maybe they found themselves here today because they're restless. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit starts to give them peace and rest, and I pray, God, that they will have the courage and the confidence to approach you. And if they will approach you, God, you will give them rest. Listen, as your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, to my left, your right, there's some men and women over here, spirit-filled, good men and women. If you need prayer for anything, especially if you need prayer for God to give you rest and peace, by all means, please go let these men and women pray for you. Let them lay hands on you. Let them encourage you. Let them pray for you. There's also communion on the right and left. It's available to anyone who has asked God to forgive them of their sins. And when you take that communion, listen, if you don't, please be respectful of the people that are. But when you take that communion, know that God went to unbelievable lengths to give you rest. God intends for you to have rest. Man, some of you guys in this room, there's just some things you need to lay down at the Father's feet and just say, God, I am tired. And I give you my word, some of you, all of you who go to him, you will find rest. As your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, last thing, the day I got saved, the first week of August in 2002, I was strung out, I had been drunk for three days and I had tried to kill myself. I walked into my pastor's office. He wasn't my pastor yet, first time I had talked with him. I sat down, he prayed with me. The Holy Spirit knocked me on the floor. I got up and I yawned. That's not an exaggeration, I yawned. And the first thing my pastor said, he says, God is giving you rest. That kind of rest is here for anyone who will approach the Father, I promise you. I love you so much. You're welcome to help yourself to communion. There's people up here to pray for you. Please make yourself at home. Please make yourself at home. I love you guys so much. Thank you.